Hello, Gaching Bonas. I'm very excited to be bringing you this episode of Season 5 of the Radio Gachimbona podcast. Radio Gachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette Borja prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. On this episode, I was very honored to have Bianca Tylek, who is the founder and executive director of Worth Rises, a nonprofit aimed at dismantling the prison industry by exposing who grossly profits from incarceration. We discussed how people power will always be the engine of abolition, the relationship between an access to phones campaign and the larger goal of abolition and encourage people to check out the Worth Rises 101 curriculum on the prison industry and profits. If you would like to support the podcast, you can become a Patreon. Whatever you can give is an amazing way to support the podcast. If you give five to ten dollars a month, then you get early access to episodes like these and exclusive access to the season five lit reviews and the whole back catalog of lit reviews, which are book club style chats with fierce women of color. There's also some fun bonus pop culture content for those who are into Bravo shows as well. And I just think that for the with the lit review, there's something for everybody. And I highly, highly recommend becoming a patron to get access to that fire content. But also for $3 a month, you can also be a Cachimbona Apoyadora, which will get you a monthly shout out on the podcast. Thank you to Araceli Rivera Cohen, who's a Cachimbona Apoyadora. Really, really appreciate it. But also, you know, if you don't have the money to support, which I totally understand because these economic times are tough, then you can also support many ways non-monetarily. One of those is leaving an Apple podcast rating and review, sharing why you love the podcast. Uh, You can do that on Spotify as well. There's a new feature where you can leave a rating. It just really helps with visibility and getting more people to see the podcast and listen to it, get exposed to it. And otherwise, you can just share with your friend or um, share on social media why it is that you love listening to the podcast. You can follow at Radio Gachimbona on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And now that I've switched to legal journalism and I'm writing about the Supreme Court and the judiciary, you can also follow my personal handle on Twitter at Yvette Borja AZ to get all of the latest blogs that I'm writing about the Supreme Court and the judiciary. Again, from a critical leftist perspective. So I think that is it. I hope that you all enjoy this episode and thank you for listening. Love you all. Hello, Kachimbonas. I'm very excited today to welcome Bianca Tyler. Bianca is the executive director of Worth Rises, and we're going to talk today about abolition and the work that Worth Rises does. So to get started, I wanted to ask if you could walk us through the mission and vision of Worth Rises. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, really glad to be here. 
As you noted, my name is Bianca, and at Worth Rises, we're a national criminal justice advocacy organization that works to dismantle the prison industry and the exploitation of those it targets, namely Black and Brown and Indigenous people. So at Worth Rises, we are building a society in which no entity or individual depends on human caging or control for their wealth operation or livelihood. What that means is regardless of whether you're a CEO of a private prison company making $6 billion or $6 million a year, or you are a correctional officer making $30,000 a year, we want to shut Mm -hmm. down the industry and shift the economy away from prisons and jails. Got it. And so is that how you're driving change in communities is by dismantling the profit that comes from caging people so that we can get to a world where we no longer do that? Exactly. I mean, I think we believe in large part that incarceration and mass incarceration and the expansion of surveillance is largely tied to the financial incentives and moments in the space and in the industry. There are many who are making money and building wealth off of incarceration, and they have every interest and incentive to perpetuate the system. And these financial actors often get in the way of our comrades who are looking to do sentencing reform or drug legalization. You sort of name it, different financial actors who have a vested interest in the existing system are getting in their way, whether it's through campaign financing for, you know, tough on crime or hard on crime, legislators, judges, um, sheriffs, others, or lobbying, you know, legislators towards uh, legislation that keeps bodies in beds and money flowing their way, they are a constant impediment. And so our theory of change is that in large part, if we can remove these financial incentives and the financial actors behind them, then our comrades uh, doing work to essentially free people from confinement can really move forward successfully and we can build uh, a society that is safe and free of prisons and police. So Worth Rises is definitely an abolitionist organization because you're working towards a future where there's no police and no prisons. Absolutely. We operate from an abolitionist mindset and philosophy and ideology every day. Mm-hmm. We think deeply and thoughtfully about how the work that we do every day will lead us towards a world free of police and prisons and really ensuring that to the best, obviously, of our abilities and that we can, that any of the work that we're doing doesn't create a negative byproduct that reinforces the system. So can you explain how one of your campaigns, which was fighting for prison phone justice, for example, does ultimately support the movement for abolition? Absolutely. I think we have to, you know, recognize that as we're fighting for abolition, you know, there are millions of our uh, siblings that are still confined, right? And that's not to reinforce Mm -hmm. the confinement environment. But that's to say that one of the most empowering ways that people can be liberated and free from that space before they can truly have their chains removed is to have their voices liberated. And that means um, really through access to communication, access to their families, access to their children, access to their parents, access to other advocates, access to their attorneys. All of these things are so wildly important, both to free minds inside, to allow people to be part of activism, 
but also to allow people to fight for their own defense, to allow their communities to help them in putting up their defense, to allow them to prepare, come home, to you know, get housing, to have a job. We know that there's nothing that is more effective at improving reentry outcomes as increasing community ties between people who are incarcerated and their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And that means people come home sooner, they come home healthier, and they come home and stay home. And that type of access, I mean, in addition to the fact that when we do prison phone justice work, what we're really in large part doing is economic justice work, right? It's um, our ability to keep the resources, the limited resources of our communities in our communities and not mm-hmm. shifting those resources back to the prison industry and in particular, even into prisons and jails and police, right? Because what we know when it comes to the prison telecom industry is that one of the ways it really has created a stronghold for itself in the prison space is by offering to pay the prisons and jails that they partner with commissions off of the rates, right, that they Mm -hmm. charge. And so what that means is they're taking our money, right, Mm -hmm. as community members and taking it and then splitting it between themselves as profiteers and then the police and the prisons and the facilities. And so our communities are being expected to essentially pay for prisons and jails a second time. And it's our money that is being used to uphold those systems. And so, and, you know, in the case of the prison phone justice work we do, which is always to fight for free communication, what we know is that we're reducing the, in large part, the revenues that are both going to the industry that's fighting to keep people behind the wall, but also to the agencies themselves. And so that means they have to make, you know, more decisions about where their money comes from. And the state has to think more critically about whether or not the system deserves more money. But but definitely, I think the work of prison phone justice serves the abolition movement in more ways than one. It with the reform that you all won is the result that the state will now pay for free phone calls? Yes. So we do believe that it is the state's responsibility to mm-hmm. provide for people who are incarcerated, including communication services, should the system decide to incarcerate them. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know, don't believe that the system should be able to shift the costs of incarceration onto families and increasingly so, because what that does is it creates no thought process around incarcerating people. You don't have to pay for them or worse yet, if mm-hmm. you can generate revenue off of them, then it creates the entire wrong perspective. And so, you know, just like electricity is paid for by the facility or healthcare or food services, mm-hmm. communication services should be one of those services that are just provided to people who are incarcerated. And not to mention the services are incredibly rudimentary. And in 2021, none of us are really paying for phone calls, right? Even the way in which we're recording this today is completely mm-hmm. utterly free. So why is it that, you know, we are allowing our families and our folks inside to be utilized for a really antiquated profit model. Yeah, I think it's really important to point out how it is ultimately family members and community members who end up bearing this cost when, as you say, it should be seen as kind of any other utility that 
the prison and the state are forced to provide if they are going to incarcerate people. And does this analysis also, does it change at all in the private prison context? And is it harder to get wins when you're dealing with a private prison? Did the phone justice reform movement include private prisons? So the analysis doesn't actually change. So, you know, I I just want to note that private prisons make up a very small percentage, right, of our entire carceral system when it comes specifically to the correctional landscape, uh, about 8% of all beds. And most of those facilities are actually contracted with a particular agency, whether that be a county jail or a state prison system. And so in the case of our legislation, any of our state or county legislation would cover any private prisons that those agencies might be contracted with. Now, we have not actually passed the legislation in any county or state where a private prison does exist. Most of where we've been able to be really successful is uh, New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, Louisville uh, are all moving towards free. And then we just passed the first successful state bill to make communications free. Um, So none of those states have private prisons, but the scenario wouldn't really change a whole lot. I think a lot of people don't know that even in publicly operated prisons, most of the services are outsourced, Mm -hmm. um, like telecom. And so the outsourcing of telecom from a public or privately run facility is pretty similar and would still be governed by the same legislation. And are these private subcontracting companies the ones that are a part of this industry that is invested in upholding and expanding incarceration? Absolutely. I mean, anyone who stands to profit off of the off of anyone who's uh, incarcerated, who's you know, on surveillance is part of the prison industry ecosystem that is helping to expand and drive incarceration. All right, I know that earlier this year, Worth Rises put out a curriculum about the prison industry. What motivated you all to create that curriculum? And what is the intended art uh, audience for that? Sure. So we put out, as you mentioned, a curriculum called the prison industry curriculum on our site. People can access it at www.worthrises.org backslash the curriculum. Really what we realized was that when we told people about many of the exploitative business models that operate in and around the prison industry, people are generally really shocked. Most people have no idea Mm. that these types of predatory businesses exist. Um, and the lengths and extent of their predation. And so what we thought about was, well, what seems really very clear is that we need to educate people about the prison industry and about the prison industry's influence on incarceration in our nation, right? I like that, you know, oftentimes you hear people make uneducated or callous remarks, like if you did the crime, you should do the time, right? And everything in between. And You know, I always say like, well, do you even know why something's a crime? And like, have you ever thought about the fact that corporate interests have influenced what's what's a crime in America and what's not? Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like, what's a good example of of corporations having an influence on what is considered crime? Yeah, a great example is marijuana legalization. 
Mm. Um, this has changed since, but early on, marijuana legalization was opposed by three major lobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was private prisons. Mm. Oh my God, that's dark. Yeah, the second was big pharma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the third was alcohol. Mm. And those particular industries all sought to lose if marijuana right. became legalized, right? Now, alcohol has sort of changed its you know, narrative and now they're supporting it because they found a way to monetize it. But at the start, mm. it was lobbies and corporations that were fighting and investing against marijuana legalization. Right. And so, you know, when you think like, oh, this is illegal, well, it's like, well, let's ask a few more questions about why it's illegal, right? I think insurance mm-hmm. companies, for example, have a lot to do with larceny laws and what's considered petty versus like uh, misdemeanor and, and felony larceny. There's all types of things that this like feeds into. I always said to some, you know, say to people, like, have you ever wondered why you need to go get a police report to report your phone lost to the insurance company that you mm-hmm. pay? Mm-hmm. Like you're their customer and they don't believe you. Right. Right. Unless some random person with a badge tells them that you lost your phone, which by the way, it's just playing telephone through this random person with a badge because you already told them you lost your phone. Right. But the reality is like police in large part and prisons in large part exist to not, you know, necessarily protect safety, but protect property. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think when you start to unfold all of the different ways and very real, these are not in any way like conspiracy theories, but all documented like you can trace money you can do all these things that are very straightforward and honestly quite frankly at some point once you start unpacking them just are so obvious you start to recognize that the industry plays a huge huge role in just what we understand to be the criminal legal system and the prison system that we know and so that's really what the curriculum is about the curriculum comes with a textbook it comes with a discussion guide for study groups it includes really short like 60 second video clips it includes radio segments about 20 minutes and it includes a class component um, which are about an hour and uh it's 15 weeks uh 13 real weeks of content the sort of warm up and cool down at the end. And every week we focus on a different sector of the prison industry. We divide the prison industry into 12 sectors that range from telecom, Mm. healthcare, to construction and architecture, to food and commissary, for example. Uh, And then there's a final sort of bonus chapter on investors and the investors and financiers behind the entire industry. And, you know, you can go through the course, you can take a little quiz at the end, but really the course is for anyone who's interested in learning more about the curriculum. I mean, about the prison industry, excuse me. You know, at the end of the day, we really want broader public to be more and more knowledgeable about the prison industry so that we can use that knowledge and outreach to drive change. And I really appreciate the kind of cultural shift that the curriculum is trying to work towards because... As you say, these, you know, people who say things like, if you did the time, you should do the crime, are speaking from a place of having been socialized their whole life and our whole lives into thinking that prison and police are a given and that they're necessary for our social problems to be addressed. And I think 
you mentioned that initiatives like the phone justice initiative require the state to kind of look more closely at what it is and is not spending money on. And so is the idea that with things like that, eventually the state will decide that this is too costly to operate? Or is there still like a people-powered movement that needs to happen? And is that what the curriculum is kind of trying to get at, is trying to mobilize people to push back against building new prisons and also fighting towards the shutting down of current prisons and jails? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's nothing we can do without a people-driven movement, right? Mm -hmm. Without base building, without the community coming out and coming out in force and with power, right? Uh, I think the system is not going to shut itself down no matter how illogical decisions that they make are right Mm -hmm. yeah because the state spends so much money on these things actually like it's really costly and ineffective correct so much money that they spend on the system it it just doesn't really matter to them i mean but i think what's what's important is where we can like build power where we can recognize those financial incentives so for example something as simple as correctional officers and unions fighting to keep facilities open because of their jobs, Mm -hmm. right? Like those are like really good examples of like places where it's not actually just about how much money can be spent on the system, but the system sort of fighting to protect itself because Mm -hmm. of even tiny little salaries coming out, right? And so I think all of that can only be refuted and combated with true like base building and community organizing power. And I think that's what we, you know, can drive and need to drive through education of our community. So it's both the empowerment, but empowerment that comes through understanding with a critical eye and analysis what has happened to our community. You know, we really do believe you can get people in the street marching, but if you can really bring them to understand the intricacies of the system, Mm -hmm. they'll find their own way. Yeah, I agree with you that that educational awareness is the first step towards any kind of collective mobilizing. So that's really important and really good. How can the podcast listeners support Worth Rises? Uh, Of course. Thank you so much for asking. So, you know, I think that for our work, there's a number of different avenues and things that we would suggest. So, you know, just off the bat, obviously folks can sign up for our newsletter on our website, just at worthrises.org. If you're really interested in learning more, I would definitely suggest the curriculum. As I said, it's worthrises.org backslash the curriculum. If you want to just keep up with um, either articles, analyses that are happening about around like what's happening in the world or be, you know, the most up to date on ways to take action, then I definitely suggest uh, following us on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Worth Rises. And then if you're interested in really specific campaigns, specifically the prison phone justice campaign we talked about, mm-hmm. um, you can also visit connectfamiliesnow.com uh, and sign up for that specific uh, listserv um, or drop, uh, if you're directly impacted, there is a space to drop stories about you know your own experience with the system uh, as it relates specifically to phone calls. Mm-hmm. And on there, there's also a number of different ways to take action, petitions to sign, ways to send emails to your legislators. And then finally, we have our latest campaign, 
called Ending Exception, which is all about ending the exception in the 13th Amendment, which was purported to abolish slavery, Mm -hmm. but in fact has an exception to uh, force slavery to be used as punishment for a crime. So we invite folks to visit endtheexception.com. Uh, take action by sending a quick email to your legislator from there, but also learning more about the campaign to abolish slavery once and for all. That's super, super important. Also, I think something that people don't realize about the prison industry is how much slave labor is used and for products that we use in our everyday lives and that we see just at a store in a mall, like Victoria's Secret or you just well like, actually Victoria's Secret doesn't use like doesn't use it anymore oh great there's actually <laughs> yeah I, I'm gonna push back on that one last part I think that I, only because like there's a lot of misinformation out there about how much slave labor is actually used and I would say most of what you've probably read is not true <laughs> unfortunately it's really frustrating because I think people are trying to like get information out there but a lot of those things are about 10 to 15 years old and even if you track back the like Victoria's Secret did use it but it was like 15 years ago. yeah and then they got called out right because yeah then, exactly it's like, well, hold, they're like recognizable holds, yeah holds yeah. too but then there was this whole thing about like brawny and like Tylenol and that just wasn't true at all it was okay. like I missed that <laughs> through like three different it was like, you know, when somebody makes a very tangential, like, leap from one thing to another, and then, like, three leaps later, you're like, whoa, this is just not even remotely in the same ballpark. <laughs> so there's a lot of misinformation out there about slave labor and, like, prison labor and slavery, um, but there's a lot of truth. I mean, actually, where I think we see a lot of prison labor and former slavery is really, like, agriculture. and yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot of other things that aren't defined quite as in the same products, right? So, I mean, I would just say, yeah, it's complicated. It's a, it's a whole nother segment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, you know, this little back and forth just proved that it's important to keep your information updated, even if you're somebody who studies this all the time. And now I'm going to go take a look at the curriculum, see what's, what's current <laughs> with, the, with the slavery issue. Sounds good. Okay, well, Bianca, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Really appreciate it. And hope to have you back again when we can talk about your work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Yvette. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.